Welcome to Abounding Grace, the preaching ministry of Pastor Sean Cole of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you for listening. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church or to obtain full-length recordings of Pastor Sean's teachings, visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. You know, there's a lot of confusion in our world today when we bring up the term evangelical, an evangelical Christian. You have people like Benny Hinn on the outer extreme of the word faith movement claiming to be evangelical. You have seeker-sensitive pastors like um, Joel Osteen and Rick Warren claiming to be evangelical. You have political candidates that, whether either Republican or Democrat, claim to want the evangelical vote. And oftentimes when you listen to the news or when you hear people talk about certain types of churches or different types of theology, there's a lot of confusion out there as to what the meaning of the word evangelical means. The word evangelical comes from the Greek word, which means to evangelize, or in other words, to share the good news of the gospel. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted his famous 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and launched the Protestant Reformation. And this was a milestone in church history where the church basically recaptured her evangelical roots and embraced a return to proclaiming the gospel of grace. And through this movement of the Protestant Reformation, five crucial statements emerged that have defined evangelicals ever since. They were originally coined in Latin, and they all contain the word sola in them, which means alone or only. They've been called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas of what it means to be evangelical. These are Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and God's glory alone. And these five bedrock beliefs are essentials that hold together all evangelicals. Now, we might have our differences on secondary issues. For example, we might differ on the role of spiritual gifts in the church. We might differ on the mode of baptism or church government and polity or style of worship or understanding of the Lord's Supper. There may be some, some secondary issues that we would debate about, but fundamentally, a true, historic, evangelical Christian embraces the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. These were formulated to really articulate a distinction against the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church did believe in the Bible, the Roman Catholic Church did believe in faith. They believed in grace. They believed in Jesus. That wasn't the issue. The issue is when you add the word alone or only onto those five statements, you are making a powerful statement about what it truly means to believe in what the Bible teaches about the very gospel itself. These are man-made confessions, these five solas, but these truths come directly from the teaching of Scripture. In April of 1996, 
uh, leading evangelical pastors, theologians, and leaders met together to draft what is called the Cambridge Declaration of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And as a pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, I wholeheartedly embrace this declaration, and our church has affiliated with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And the definition of these five crucial doctrines come directly from this declaration. I encourage you to go explore the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, their website, www.alliancenet.org. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore in more detail the five solas that define truly what it means for us to be evangelical. So let's first of all talk about Scripture alone. Scripture alone. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the statement from the the, the Cambridge Declaration just to kind of give us a framework, and then we're going to explore what the Scriptures actually teach about these five solas. So here's what the Cambridge Declaration says about Scripture alone. We reaffirm the inerrant Scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. When we talk about Scripture alone, we are saying that the Scriptures, the the Holy Bible, is God's final, inerrant, authoritative word given to us for all faith and practice. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. There's no other set of books. There's no other set of councils or creeds or church governments or papacy or any type of outside influence that has the sole right to come in and, and dictate to us over against what the Bible says. The Bible alone is the sole written form of revelation that God has given us. It's a closed canon for all time to be our sole measure, our sole authority for faith and practice. And I pray that if you're listening to this radio program this morning that you belong to a church that holds the highest view of Scripture as the very God-breathed Word that it is. What is the nature of Scripture? How does the Scripture itself define itself? Interesting question. Well, well, first of all, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is therefore verbally inspired. Literally, God breathed it out. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This word breathed out really comes from two Greek words used together. Theopanoustos, which means God literally breathed out out exactly what he wanted written down. Now, human authors obviously wrote the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they wrote as God impressed upon their hearts and minds exactly what God wanted to say, down to every last jot and tittle, down to every last phrase, every last um, grammatic construct. It is the breathed out word of God. It wasn't as if Paul was sitting down and just had an epiphany one day and decided to write some cool things. No, it came directly from God. And therefore, it is God's breathed word. Second Peter chapter 1, 
verse 20 through 21, tell us this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Sola Scriptura means is that the Bible is our only source of God's truth. It is the God-breathed Word. And because it is the God-breathed Word, we also believe this about the Scriptures. It is inerrant in the original manuscripts, which means basically the Bible is absolute truth without any mixture of error. Numbers chapter 23 Verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God's word is absolutely truth without any mixture of error. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inerrant. All scripture is infallible and all scripture is authoritative in that it has the supreme and final right to dictate to us what is true and what is right and also how we are to live and how we are to behave. Many times you hear Christians use this expression and I don't necessarily fault them for that, but it's, it, it lacks a clear and full understanding of what we're talking about. A lot of Christians say this, we just need to apply the Bible to our lives. And at first glance, that, that doesn't sound all that threatening. We need to apply the Bible to our lives. And I know what they mean, but what they're subtly saying is, is that my life is the one that's the most important. And I'm going to apply the Bible to my life. In, the, in other words, if there's parts of the Bible that don't apply to my life, then I'll just pick and choose which parts I'm going to, 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 to live under. Instead, what we should be saying is that I'm going to adjust my life under the authority of the Bible. The Bible has a higher authority than my life, my personal preferences, my desires, my wishes. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I believe. It matters what the Scripture says, and I align and adjust my life under the authority of the Holy Scriptures. So, the first sola of the Protestant Reformation that describes for us what an evangelical is, is Scripture alone, or the Bible alone alone. Now what's the second one? The second one is Christ alone, which really means that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I mean, this is very, very clear from the scriptures that there is no other way of salvation. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We also find this truth in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. 
1 John 5.12, John says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So if you don't have Jesus, if you aren't trusting in Christ alone, you don't have eternal life. Now, the Cambridge Declaration of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals states this. It says, we reaffirm that our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. We have got to hold fast to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God, becoming a curse for us so that we could be forgiven. We could be redeemed. We could be purchased. And it's under attack today. A lot of people don't want to talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ because, frankly, they're offended by blood. They're offended by the gruesome nature of a sacrifice. They're offended by the fact that Jesus would be the only way. Don't all paths lead to God? Aren't all religions basically saying the same thing? That's not true. Jesus said himself, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the only way that we can get to the Father, the only way we can get reconnected back to our God, our Creator, is through the substitutionary sacrifice of one who was qualified to die in our place, the historical Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless, perfect life in full obedience to the Father's will, obeyed Him perfectly in thought, word, and deed, and then went and died in our place on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, taking the guilt and shame of our punishment, and then rising again, literally and bodily, from the grave and is reigning now at the right hand of the Father in heaven as our high priest, as our advocate, as our mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ alone. And I pray that you don't get uh, you don't succumb or get seduced by this tenor this this attitude in our culture today that really wants to say that all paths lead to heaven that a loving god would not send anybody to hell if they've never heard of jesus christ the bible is very clear that jesus christ alone is the only way of salvation so first of all scripture alone God's word alone. Number two, Christ alone. Jesus is the only way of salvation. But number three, grace alone. Grace alone. Now, the declaration states this. We reaffirm that in salvation, we are rescued from God's wrath by his grace alone. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. When we talk about grace alone, there is an assumption that the Bible assumes for us. It assumes that we are dead, we are lost, we are depraved, we are blinded, we are hostile in mind to God, we are spiritually dead, and we need to be made spiritually alive. 
And the scripture is very clear that we cannot produce within ourselves this ability to raise ourselves to spiritual life. We can't rescue ourselves out of bondage to sin. We are dead. We are lost. We are depraved. We need a supernatural working of grace for God to come and rescue us, to release us, to take the shackles off, to to bring us to new life, to cause us to be born again. And so salvation is not a work that's produced by the human heart. We can't produce our own salvation. Human methods can't do it. Human techniques, human strategies. Saying a sinner's prayer doesn't save you. Walking an aisle doesn't save you. Getting baptized as an infant or even as an adult doesn't save you. Going through confirmation class doesn't save you. Signing on the dotted line at an invitation uh, of an evangelist to, to tell you that, that if you just sign the dotted line, you're a Christian, it doesn't save you. Raising your hand at the end of a worship service doesn't save you. Christ alone saves by grace alone. As a matter of fact, John 6.44, listen to the words of Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That when it says no one can come, it's not talking about permission. No one has the permission to come. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about ability. No one has the inherent ability to come to the Father unless something happens. What has to happen? God has to draw a sinner god has to regenerate a sinner god has to cause a sinner to be born again god has to open the eyes of the hearts god has to do it we in our sinful state can't produce this that's why it's grace alone if it was something that we could do something that we could accomplish something that we could affect it wouldn't be grace alone it would be grace plus my effort grace plus something i did An example of this is in the book of Acts, Acts 16, verse 14. There was a woman named Lydia. She was down by the river. And listen to what it says. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart. She didn't open her heart. The Lord did. Oftentimes you'll hear pastors say, just open your heart to Jesus. Well, theologically and biblically, a sinner can't do that. If you're dead and you're lost, you can't open your heart. God has to open your heart to see your need for Christ. And when God does that through the miracle of the new birth, then you see your desperate need for Christ, and then you repent and you believe in Him. We have hearts of stone, the Bible says. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27 says this, God speaks of a future day that he would do this in the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We have a heart of stone, a dead, stony, cold heart that's unresponsive to God. We are dead in our sins. God must replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and only God can do that. We can't replace our own stony hearts. Only God can. Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses one through nine is probably the most powerful place in the Bible that describes the seriousness of our deadness and the grace and beauty and glory of God making us alive in Christ through salvation. Ephesians chapter two, verse one through nine. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, he says we're dead there. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We're enslaved to our flesh. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to this world. We are dead, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are under God's wrath, under God's just condemnation. We are dead in sin. We are hopeless. We are helpless in and of ourselves to effect salvation. It has to be grace alone. Now look at verse four. There's a but God. Very, very important in the scriptures. You've got the bad news, but then you've got the but God. And listen to the good news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If it wasn't grace alone, we would be able to boast because somehow we contributed to our salvation. We affected it in our dead state, which the Bible says it's impossible to do. God must make us alive through grace alone. So number one, scripture alone. Number two, Christ alone. Number three, grace alone. But here's number four, faith alone. Faith alone. The Alliance claims this. We reaffirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. We deny that justification rests on any merit to be found in us. And this goes against the grain of most of our American religious systems because we want to somehow work for our salvation. We want to somehow do something, go to church, be obedient to the Ten Commandments, somehow maybe do a sacrament, give tithes and offerings, help an old lady across the street, whatever it may be, that you are intrinsically wanting to do something in order to earn your salvation by doing as opposed to receiving the righteousness of Christ. You see, we have no righteousness to produce. We are unrighteous, we are unclean, and we need the righteousness of Christ in order to have that perfect standing in God's sight. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, captures this truth with the phrase, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We contribute nothing to the salvation of our souls. The only thing we really contribute is our own sin. And here's what needs to happen. We need to be justified by faith alone. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now let's talk about justification by faith alone because this is the bedrock of what it means to be an evangelical. There are two parts to this great exchange, two things that have to be there. First of all, 
Our sins need to be credited to Christ. So when we trust Christ for salvation, he takes our sins, he bears our sins, he forgives our sins. And so when God, the judge, looks down upon our life, he sees us as innocent. He sees us as not guilty. He sees us as having been forgiven. But there's another aspect of it. We need the positive righteousness of Christ in order to get access into heaven. So we need the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his righteousness credited or imputed or reckoned to our lives so that when God does look down upon us, he sees Christ's record, not ours. We don't get into heaven on our record. Our record is totally in debt. We are in debt to sin. We have accumulated major sin. We can't stand before this holy God contributing anything to our own salvation. We need the righteousness of another. We need what's called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of us to declare us not guilty. And that's what faith alone is. It's a sovereign declaration by a holy God on our lives that we are not guilty on account of our sins being credited to Christ and his righteousness being credited to us. This great exchange occurs the moment we place our faith in Christ alone for salvation. Justification by faith alone. So we have scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and finally, in all things, it's God's glory alone. God is to receive the glory alone. He's not going to share his glory with another. The declaration affirms this by stating, we reaffirm that because salvation is of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory and that we must glorify him always. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for his glory alone. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Not to us, it's not about us. If, if salvation was something we could produce by our own works, something that we could conjure up in, in and of ourselves, a choice that we somehow made, then God would not receive the glory because we would be doing it. No, when we step foot into heaven, all we can say is all praise to God alone because the only reason I'm here in heaven is because God and only God has done everything. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything is pointing us towards God. The universe is about God. God is most interested in God. Contrary to popular opinion, God is not most interested in us. God is most interested in himself. And yes, we receive the blessings of salvation. And yes, we have eternal life. But the fundamental issue in the universe is not how does God make us happy, but how do we find our strength and how are we happy in God being for God? The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's all about God's glory. God is most for God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and we're created. God is worthy to receive glory. 
So what makes an evangelical Christian? How are evangelical Christians separated from all other movements of the world? Well, it comes in that word alone attached to these five statements. Many other groups will claim to be Christian. They'll give acknowledgement to Jesus. They may give acknowledgement to having faith, believing the scriptures, maybe even grace, but they don't put the alone on the end. They will add other measures, other requirements, other standards, other authorities. In the end, they make salvation man-centered rather than God-centered. So I pray that you evaluate your church and ask some hard questions. Does my local fellowship embrace the five solas of the Protestant Reformation? Am I truly an evangelical Christian in the historic sense of the word? Does God alone receive the glory for my salvation? And is that through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith in Him alone, as revealed in Scripture alone? And if you're listening to this radio program and you've never trusted Christ, you've never repented of your sin, you've never confessed the fact that you are a sinner under God's wrath, and if God were just and holy, you would be sent directly to hell to spend eternity separated from this holy God, and there is no hope for you without the blood of Christ Jesus and his sacrifice of atonement and his glorious resurrection, then the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So repent, turn from your sin. Confess that you are under God's wrath and you need to be rescued. And then turn and trust and embrace Christ alone for salvation. Keep your eyes fixed upon him as the only one who can save you from your sin and trust in him, believe in him, that he died on the cross, he rose again, and he is a sufficient savior for all who call upon the name of the Lord. 